0: welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Andrew Carter, Clinical Professor of Law at the Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. We will discuss his article, The Case for Plagiarism, which is published in the UC Irvine Law Review. So welcome to the show, Andrew.
1: Great to be here, Brian. Look forward to talking to you.
0: Yeah, me too. So as I was saying to you earlier, Um, When I saw this paper come through my SSRN feed, I downloaded and read it absolutely immediately because, as you know, plagiarism – is one of my favorite subjects. And I really enjoyed this paper, which I thought was exceptionally well-written and, um, and 100% correct in my, in my my personal opinion. Um, but I I wonder if, if we could start by situating listeners a little bit in, into the problem that you're engaging in. So you've got a really provocative title, right? The case for plagiarism, what kind of plagiarism are you talking about and how did you get interested in this subject?
1: Well, I should. I should. If I describe the origin of the project, I think that'll that'll cover it. So, uh, I teach legal writing here at ASU, and uh, one of the tensions um, that we have when we teach legal writing is obviously we have a, a very strict academic uh, rule against plagiarism, but at the same time in practice um, there are very modest forms of plagiarism that are widely tolerated. And so um, I wanted to sort of provide a guide for my students, um, you know, that I fashioned sort of as an advocate's guide to plagiarism, and the notion was a little bit of plagiarism here and there. Maybe when you're reviewing the analytical rules under Miranda, for instance, uh, you know, no one's going to bat an eye if you if you borrow some phrasing or a paragraph from a case. But there's a point, and I was going to basically say you just can't. Excuse me, but you can't be an ass about it. And to illustrate what it, being an ass about it was going to be, is I was going to use the case of Peter Cannon. Um, and canon uh, is where I begin the story, but he submitted a brief in a bankruptcy court in Iowa. It was 19 pages long. 17 of those pages were cut and pasted directly from an article he found online. Uh, he did not give attribution to the original authors. Uh, when the bankruptcy court found this out, um, the judicial source felt very, very heavy. The court um, humiliated Cannon with a, a published opinion uh, in which the court ordered him to go back to law school to take an ethics course, uh, got some national attention. And so he was a great case for saying, don't be this person to my students. But somewhere buried in that bankruptcy court opinion was this uh, statement that the court had uh, initially um, become suspicious of the origins of the prose because of its unusually high quality. Uh, And that stuck with me because I started thinking to myself, well, if the plagiarized brief actually did its job, what's the court's concern and why would the court uh, feel the need to sanction the attorney for this? And doing a bit more research, uh, you find a very thick norm enforced in a number of published cases where courts have uh, formally rebuked attorneys for plagiarism in their briefs. Uh, And from there, I decided I was going to try to locate the interest that the plagiarism or the anti-plagiarism rule um, supports. And uh, it ultimately led me to a conclusion that it doesn't really make sense to uh, try to govern plagiarism in briefs.
0: Right, so I, I, I want to dig a little bit more into sort of what it looks like typically when courts identify and punish plagiarism in in motion practice by by attorneys. But but I thought it might be helpful to to, to kind of take a step back and sort of ask what we mean by by plagiarism. So in other words, like how would we Define plagiarism. Or kind of, how do you define plagiarism for the purpose of your article? You know, what kind of framework might we have for thinking about whether and why we should object to it? And sort of, what does that mean in the context of of legal writing or kind of legal practice specifically? Like, what would it look like for somebody to be arguably plagiarizing plagiarizing in in a legal filing?
1: well, I you know, and this is something that comes up in the in the scholarship persistently that it's actually really hard to define plagiarism, and often whether it is uh, uh a sanctionable offense is really determines on the particular institution, so different institutional settings will have different definitions of plagiarism. but in the article, I just work on the broad one from the the modern Language Association, and this is just the idea of the presenting another person's ideas, information expression, or their entire work as your own without giving them attribution. That is the plagiarism. And in, in, in practice, uh, in motion practice, uh, what the courts seem to be concerned about is this large scale plagiarism from unrelated attorneys. Um, whether it's whole paragraphs, whole sections that are lifted, copied and pasted into a brief file with the court, and the original author is never given attribution or credit for their work. There's no citation.
0: Right, right. I mean, it it seems to me, at least kind of anecdotally, that when plagiarism accusations come up in legal practice, as you say, it tends to be really egregiously large Amounts of copying, and that small amounts of copying uh, of particular phrases or or um, or passages from a previously existing text don't get treated as plagiarism. And, and, and certainly, it seems to me that you know, kind of idea plagiarism just isn't a thing in in legal practice, right? So why 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 is that?
1: Well, so I don't know if courts would say. Or acknowledge that they tolerate small doses of plagiarism. Uh, the classic case would be. Summary judgment standards, right, uh, in, a, in a civil case, there's three or four paragraphs that every jurisdiction has, which basically just outlines, here are the summary judgment standards. Um, obviously, most lawyers just rely on the three or four paragraphs that the court has previously endorsed in their own drafting. It would not make any sense for the client for you to do independent research on the standards, you know, draft your own uh, original paragraphs. That would just be a waste of the client's money. That clearly goes... Um, Unsanctioned, other forms of plagiarism. I don't know if the court, the lower level plagiarism. I don't know if the courts tolerate it um, consciously, or it just goes it goes past them undetected, in the sense that it doesn't. It's the large scale copying that gets caught. I'm not so sure if the courts were aware of the low if the, of uh, because I think they have such a misapprehension of the utilitarian goals of the anti-plagiarism rule. I'm not sure if they caught the lower level plagiarism if they wouldn't still uh, be bent out of shape about it. Does that make sense?
0: yeah yeah no, for sure, for sure. it's like when they when they yeah. see it and you sort of rub their nose in it, then it makes them angry for one reason or another and
1: yeah, and that's um and I, and I know I was using a colloquialism, but that's what I meant by like you can't be an ass about it um <laughs> I really try to describe that like you can't kind of be a scoundrel, mm-hmm. um but at the same time, when the courts do discover that larger scale uh, plagiarism, the terms they use to describe the practice, it's reprehensible, wholly intolerable, um, completely unprofessional. That sort of communicates to all of us that there's a very thick norm against plagiarism in all realms. Uh, and one of the points of my paper is that kind of, be, ultimately I determined that plagiarism can be a very cost-effective means of drafting an effective brief. Um, and the court's um, very strong language about plagiarism sort of stifles the efficiencies that might otherwise be obtained.
0: Yeah. So I was wondering like, when plagiarism is identified and punished by courts, is plagiarism typically the only problem that is present? Or in your experience and research, do you see it kind of cropping up in kind of Conjunction with or in concert with other kinds of potential issues, including potential professional responsibility related issues.
1: For sure. And um, the canon case that I emphasize, it's a little unusual in the sense that the court acknowledged that it was otherwise competent briefing, that the issue, the singular issue, was the plagiarism. Um, The other case that I I highlight in the paper is the Lindsay lohan pitbull case uh where Lindsay lohan uh had a intellectual property action in new york against pitbull for referencing her in a song um her attorney in that case uh offered the court uh like a rag bag of plagiarism really was a terrible brief by any measure um And the court was really upset about it. The court basically sanctioned the attorney for the plagiarism, but it was really a sanction for the incompetent motion practice. The court kind of conflated the two, uh, suggesting that uh, it was the plagiarism that led to the incompetence, but that's not the case. It was the incompetence that led to the plagiarism.
0: Yeah. And there is something really odd about saying, you know, you filed a brief that is effective in doing what the brief is supposed to do, but objectionable because of how you created it. I mean, it almost like implies that courts are sort of assume, assuming or asserting that, you know, one measure of judgment of a brief is its literary merit or something. And it, it that just seems odd, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And this was uh... – this is really – I really start the paper. I try to locate whatever wh- – what is the interest that the court is trying to protect by sanctioning the plagiarism, especially in the canon's case where, as you know, you said, the plagiarism led to a helpful brief that covered the law uh, and, uh, I, at least by appearances, contextualized the facts as necessary. Um There are – you know, in the paper, I sort of look at the three parties whose interests might be protected by the anti-plagiarism rule, and one of those is the court. They are the intended audience, Um, and they certainly – if you look at the language the courts use in responding to plagiarism, it certainly looks like there's been some sort of personal affront to the the court itself. But it's really hard to identify what those interests are. If a court – If its singular job is to take the brief, review the embedded arguments, and resolve the case in the way that's most consistent with justice in the cases that have come before, the origins of the argument or the origins of the prose in that brief is really irrelevant to their core task of resolving the case on the merits. Um, And so I I looked at it from the detrimental reliance theory that uh, Judge Posner has advanced to try to explain plagiarism norms as the impact on the intended party. And the idea here is, say, if, uh, if you plagiarize a brief, but the audience is taking some sort of action, relying on a presumption of originality, well, then plagiarism is properly discouraged or proscribed. But the judge, you know, reviewing a brief, doesn't take any action relying on a presumption of originality. You can never imagine a court saying, "Well, you know, I was going to decide the case this way, but then I found out that brief wasn't, you know, actually." Uh, drafted by the filing attorney. And now I'm going to change my mind and and go the other way in the case. That's preposterous. Um, No court would ever do that. And in many of the cases where courts have sanctioned plagiarism, uh, they've been very careful to suggest that the plagiarism has had no impact on how they've resolved the case. So they kind of acknowledge that there is no detrimental reliance. There is no necessary presumption of originality um, in the filing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like maybe we could dig a little bit more into that. Like when courts do object to what they perceive or define as being plagiarism in a brief, like do they provide a explanation or a theory as to why they, they object and sort of to the extent we think that the primary value is the interest of the client like what is that objection that the court might rely on i mean other than just a sort of sort of a background principle that plagiarism is bad from other contexts and therefore it ought to be bad in this context as well i mean i wonder if there isn't a kind of bootstrapping element to to, to, some of this? And, you know, like to what extent are client interests impacted
2: here?
1: So, one of the frustrating things uh, about uh, getting into the cases is that the courts never take time to really explain the sanction. Um, when you do have a formal sanction, like in the Cannon case, they, uh, they fashion the remedy under uh, Rule of Professional Conduct 8.3C, which basically just prescribes misrepresentation broadly. And so the idea here is, well, you've committed misrepresentation because you signed your name to a brief you didn't um, compose entirely uh, originally. Um, but that's really just saying, I'm saying, your plagiarism because well it's plagiarism so the courts all seem to proceed as though this is like a malum se offense right it's of uh, plagiarism of, is of such moral turpitude that uh, no further justification is necessary um, and that's and they, they kind of they they advance on this sense that there's some presumed universal moral objection to plagiarism Um and as you and any other scholars that have worked or have studied plagiarism in the round acknowledge, that you know, uh, the first precept is that plagiarism norms are context-specific. They don't come from some universal morality. They exist to serve the interest of the particular institution that the plagiarist operates. And so the courts can't just rely on this presumed morality. They have to identify this is the interest that is served by me enforcing this norm against plagiarism in brief drafting. And the problem is once you take presumed morality off the table, it's really hard to identify the interest being served. And you brought up the client. There is an argument, and this certainly came up in the Lindsay Lohan case, that you know plagiarism is a uh, sort of incompetent manner of drafting. That uh, if you rely on plagiarism, you can't really be serving the client's interests. And I should say right now that if plagiarism actually allows you to draft a competent brief spending less time and therefore less money, there's a lot there for a client to like. But that rests on a presumption that you can plagiarize a brief and still come up with something that is uh, competent and serves the client's interests. Um, certainly in the uh, Lindsay Lohan case, the court seemed to suggest that uh, plagiarism would invariably lead to incompetent briefs, but that's not the case. Again, in the Cannon case, the court acknowledged that the brief was actually helpful, Um and you know we have brief banks at many large firms. That you know that the idea is, of course, that young associates would copy from these uh, the briefs that they find in these brief banks because that would efficiently allow them to draft things without costing the attorneys a lot of money. the The, the heavier and the much re- more reasonable presumption is that. There's all sorts of competent plagiarism that's occurring, and most of it's it's just not being detected by the courts because it's it's being presented professionally in a competent brief.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a client interest perspective, it just seems quite strange to me because in in many contexts, I mean, A, the law might be consistent across a wide range of cases with different factual scenarios, right? And so sort of reinventing the law every time seems – a sort of inefficient and b especially if you're a junior lawyer or imagine somebody's not a particularly good drafts person right like recreating the the kind of certain elements of a brief for example might actually result in something lower quality and less effective and therefore less beneficial to the client than copying something done by someone for whom that's really their primary primary skill set um you know, one thing I've always asked my my students or the way I kind of framed it to my students is, like, imagine yourself as the client. And if your attorney comes to you and says, well, you know, in theory, I could have plagiarized this entire brief and billed you for one hour worth of work. But because plagiarism is wrong, I instead rewrote the entire brief and here's your bill for 20 hours. I mean, how do you feel as a client?
1: Um, I don't – you know – I think most clients, if you can produce a competent professional brief with a little bit of plagiarism or a lot of plagiarism and it saves them money, um, I don't know where their objection would come from. There is a strand of, uh, there is some strand of analysis in terms of how an anti-plagiarism rule might protect the client. And this is the sense of, it's only by sort of Doing original drafting, uh, crafting your own brief that you really come to understand the client's case. Right, this is the uh, uh, the cognitive school of sort of composition theory. That it's through the writing that you really come to understand something. Um, And so there's much to argue for the idea that, you know, it's if the client has the resources, their interest could be served by having the attorney sort of draft things uh, originally because, again, the attorney would uh, obtain a greater command of the case and and better represent the client's interests. But I note in the paper that um, that's great for the attorneys who serve really well-resourced clients. Um, There's a lot of attorneys who serve clients who are really impecunious. And I, I cite the common statistic that you know, well over half of America would have a hard time raising a thousand dollars, and that means they'd have a hard time raising a thousand dollars for legal representation. Generally, they certainly don't have the money to pay for a uh, originally crafted twelve page brief. That's going to take many hours for most attorneys, and that'll exhaust that thousand dollars in no time at all. So, I kind of suggest there is a access to justice element at play here that um, by allowing for more or at least uh, tolerating more plagiarism, uh, you may be offering uh, some less resourced Americans a better opportunity to, to have briefs filed on their behalf.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, and it, again, I mean, it really strikes me that one of the odd things about the cases you describe in in your paper is the way the courts seem to be sort of importing uncritically sort of a, a baseline of plagiarism norms and this kind of Malamense say concept from a much more kind of literary context and which a doesn't really seem to make much sense but b in addition they don't seem to import a lot of the other kind of subsidiary doctrines from the same context that they're otherwise adopting this kind of big picture principle. Like, for example, I certainly haven't seen courts, you know, apply like a, or at least uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like they apply much of a sort of safe, self plagiarism norm like if if you generated the brief initially or someone at your firm generated the brief initially then well it's fine go ahead and you know that belongs to you in the first instance so but it like in a literary context that would be considered objectionable you know for better or or for worse and then in addition and i wonder if you could reflect on this a little bit cuz it's something i'm particularly interested in is sort of what about like consent to plagiarism right because there's certainly lots of contexts as you know where you know lawyers or companies will generate texts that are intended to be copied without attribution i.e in a literal sense plagiarized i mean that could be like a brief bank that could be like forms, like a legal zoom type situation or something like that um or, or really it could even be the forms that the you know that the courts put into their own rules of civil procedure, right? I mean, those are there for people to plagiarize them,
1: right? It is indeed, and this is um, one of the contradictions among many that you immediately encounter when you you wade into plagiarism doctrine. Um, I call it in the paper the the plagiarizing attorney contradiction, um, where you know if. If Peter Cannon had been a junior associate at a firm and he had just decided to plagiarize 17 pages of a brief that, a, you know, another attorney had written or a junior attorney had written for, on his behalf, uh, he'd be fee- free to file that um, under his name uh, and the court wouldn't bat an eye. Um And we also have the, you know, uh, I I avoid this generally in the paper, but there's also the tension with the fact that many of the court's own opinions are written by clerks, (laughs) but only bear the judge's signature, right? Um, So this, I, there's a long tradition in the law of senior attorneys effectively plagiarizing junior attorneys, um, and there's, there's no doubt there's, there's tolerance of that across the board. Uh, that is hard to reconcile with a uh, general sense that all plagiarism is evil. Um, I try to follow that a bit with, or try to offer some explanation for that with a, a copyright theory of plagiarism. And I know you've written about this that there is a, a material distinction between copyright uh, infringement and plagiarism, uh, and really. Copyright is really focused on uh, the economic impacts of controlling the copying of one's work, and the, the it's really just a predicate offense to plagiarism. The plagiarism really turns on the failure to give attribution to the original author. But if you do rely on one of the things that copyright offers is sort of ready-made doctrine, right? Some of these things have been worked through already in the sense that pl- plagiarism is, remains really incoherent. And so there is this idea, at least in copyright, if the junior attorney is working for the senior attorney, it's effectively a work for hire, and the senior attorney is you know free to do with that work as they see fit. And it's really not, a, it doesn't implicate copyright in that sense. So that's one way of explaining it. But ultimately, the copyright explanation just doesn't get you very far. Um, because most of the things that you, uh, most an attorney would copy do not present uh, copyright issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, ironically, we rarely conceptualize copyright as relevant to what we do as lawyers, at least lawyers right. in in practice. I mean, like, you know, if if we assume that literary works produced for the purpose of litigation are copyrighted works of authorship, well, then, you know, people engage in copyright infringement really willy will, willy nilly and no one really th- seems to think twice about it including in copyright infringement litigation right, right. i mean there's <laughs> a non trivial amount of litigation documents like alleging infringement yes. by yeah. clients that you know looked at through the lens of copyright would themselves be infringing
1: yeah <laughs> the the copyright issues um are are really fascinating. And and I argue in the paper, one, uh, well, it's well established that, you know, a court could never object based on, on copyright grounds to someone copying an opinion because uh, the, all opinions are in the public domain, as well they should be. Um, the issue of whether an attorney could ever have a copyright interest in a brief file with the court, I argue that um, There's sort of a. I argue as a matter of public policy, if a if an attorney is taking advantage of the public courts, uh, a fair exchange is that any brief that they file there becomes uh, sort of part of the public repository of the law that anyone can copy for any reason. Um, There's also just the the uh, fair use doctrine. I I argue it's broad enough to include sort of the democratic values of the access to justice. This idea that. We want to make everyone's briefs available to everyone because the arguments or the pros embedded in those briefs may help another person obtain justice, uh, and ultimately that's the reason for the entire system, and that's the goal, and we should all participate in that. Nobody should try to hoard their arguments, right? It does a certain – it undermines the common law system in a sense, the idea that if we we can sort of take these arguments and you have to pay me to use them uh, on behalf of your own client.
2: Mm
0: Well, okay. So, I I was wondering, like, what happens if we think about plagiarism norms as a form of authorial quasi-property, right? As it were, right. If we think of attribution as a kind of a form of literary property that has value to the author, and that they want to be able to enforce in order to ensure that they sort of get their just non-economic due in in attribution, is that something we should take seriously in in this context? I mean, you know, like for example, the canon fellow you mentioned, as I understand, it, he was like, you know, he was quote unquote plagiarizing a treatise. Well, that's you know, that's a that's a uh, uh, much more clearly or much more clearly sort of within the scope of what we would conceptualize as kind of appropriately protected by copyright and appropriately a form of literary work as opposed to necessarily a form of of litigation work. So should the author of the treatise have the right and ability to object to that kind of copying in a litigation context and and even more so like assuming that the author of the treatise doesn't object is it legitimate for someone to object on their behalf
1: so this is where i uh struggle the most with my ultimate conclusion that the the courts should just get out of the courts and professional tribunals should just get out of the business of trying to enforce uh, plagiarism norms and, and filed briefs. Uh, I'm a bit of a faint-hearted <laughs> apologist for plagiarizers in this sense. Uh, and what you're getting at is this this moral theories of moral theory of copyright which isn't really recognized under American law, but uh there is a there is some sense of the authorial expression. Um, I, I describe it in the paper, and again, this is uh, it's all quite squishy for me, but certainly when I have spent time um, on a brief, whether it's an appellate brief or a motion for summary judgment or even a mediation statement or something, uh, you spend a lot of time crafting it, you begin to feel like you've sort of... Exp- it's an expression of yourself into the world. You've spun a little bit of yourself into the sentences and paragraphs. And then certainly for me to see that taken by some other attorney and filed without giving me attribution, without giving me um, the the professional credit that might, you know, or the esteem that uh, might flow from that for them to sort of steal that from me. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I, that's, I struggle with that. Um, but as I thought about it in a a deeper sense, um, the trouble with that approach, especially in legal practice, is that almost everything we do is sort of collaborative these days. And it's really hard to untangle whose self is being offended by the plagiarist plagiarizer. So um, if you imagine a, a court opinion that's plagiarized, well, that court opinion probably was written by two clerks working closely with a judge, maybe three, there's two or there's more than one author behind that. And so you have to start thinking, well, well, whose self is being offended here? Uh, whose moral interests are we trying to protect? So legal writing has become so collaborative and social. It's really hard to identify those interests. And in the paper, I make this point where, um, plagiarism norm sort of arose out of uh, the romantic uh, period of the, the 1700s when there was this real sense of the author um, sort of going in a room by themselves and, and sort of creating this universe. Uh, that's not how things work. I, you can think of in terms of the difference between the, like the Gutenberg Press and uh, Dropbox, right? We've moved... <laughs> the way we produce the written word has changed dramatically mm-hmm. and it's become more social and collaborative. And so this sense of you're spinning yourself onto, a, uh, your own self onto, uh, into a paragraph or, uh, the paper, it starts to lose purchase. Um, and the other side of it is that the common law system, uh, and the, 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 the stare decisis framework that, uh, s- still dominates, uh, much of the legal analysis, uh, it's intended to be derivative, right? Uh, it's, your analysis is only persuasive if it's anchored in the texts that have become before the texts that have announced rules and conducted analysis. And so the idea that you're can really coming up with anything truly original um, in the law, especially if you're working within started decisis if it's a, an effective brief, a pr- persuasive brief, it it should be anchored in other people's writing. So everything is sort of borrowed and plagiarized. And so at least as sympathetic as I am to the broader authorial sense of uh, a, a, a dignitary offense when someone takes your work, I ultimately find it just, it's just not persuasive enough in the legal practice context to outweigh the, the social benefits of in more, more efficient, less expensive briefs, especially for folks who have less money in, in America today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating about the Cannon case, which, as you say, is kind of an outlier because of the factual circumstances, is that it really suggested to me a way in which the sort of perceived plagiarism and related norms of the court and expectations on the attorney, in some ways, like, almost seem like they sort of induced the plagiarism themselves in the sense that like in the context of that particular case, right, the objection is that the lawyer copied from a treatise and didn't acknowledge that the source of the material was from, from the treatise. And I can't help but ask like why is it that the author that – the, that the lawyer made that decision? Because I mean it seems like at least in the abstract, to my mind, like if you were to acknowledge that all this text came from the treatise, this is black letter law. My client wins. That actually just makes your argument stronger, right? I mean, like leaving out the attribution is not a plus; it's like a minus, right? the The lawyer is less of an authority than the objective, neutral, like kind of like high high uh, status, arguably treatise writer, right? I mean, it's it almost feels like because the court is creating this expectation of originality and labor. They're actually kind of inducing the very lack of attribution that they then turn around and punish.
1: That's right, because there's a sense if, uh, you know, I don't know if, uh, if Mr. Cannon had block quoted <laughs> the entire 17 pages that he cut and paste uh, and gave it a proper citation, uh, if the court would have been any more pleased, right? Um, that would have just brought to the attention uh, – the cutting and pasting, which the court seems to seems to so deeply object to, but I do I I do think there's room for compromise here. If there really is a concern, uh, I certainly don't think compelling um, attorneys to block quote the two or three pages that they may cut and paste from a different source uh, is effective. I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, well respected judges who have written, please don't. No block quotes, you know, more than a paragraph long. So I think um, that's probably not the solution. But dropping a footnote saying that the, the the following three pages have been effectively cut and pasted from this source, uh, you know, I have found that is uh, effective, and it doesn't make sense for my client for me to spend extra time doing this. I'm not sure what the harm there would be. There is a class of um, plagiarism or cutting and pasting. So um, especially with the proliferation of unpublished decisions, um, it may be that that would be the great source for this cutting and pasting, right? That there's an analysis in an unpublished opinion that you want to cut and paste. You run into the rules against citing those unpublished cases when you cut and paste from those. So you, you cut and paste from them, um, if you're going to follow this rule that you have to at least drop a footnote, technically then you're in violation of the rule against citing the unpublished decision. So there's all these tensions that would have to be resolved on some sort of compromise position there. So, does that make sense? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, uh, Andrew, in closing, I, I, I wonder if we could like take sure. a little shift for a second, right? Because you know, in addition to being a legal scholar, you're also a professor and you teach legal writing. Meaning, yeah. you're teaching right around the subject area that that you're that you're doing scholarly work in. How do you square this take? on plagiarism in the legal profession and what our expectations <laughs> on attorneys ought to be with with what you teach yeah. your students in yeah. class, right? Because I mean, yeah. this is yeah. pretty clearly a violation of university plagiarism norms for better or for worse. I mean, does this to your mind suggest that we should like kind of have sort of like a do what I say, do what I do, what I say, not what I do type sort of approach to teaching legal writing? Like don't do this until you're out in practice or does it suggest that maybe we should rethink the norms that we articulate as governing student work as well?
1: Um, I'm really happy you brought this up because this is <laughs> a really important distinction and one that I uh, do make sure that my students understand, especially the ones is that wander into this article. Um, in the academic setting, uh, when I am asking them to draft uh, litigation briefs uh, in my writing courses, uh, I am trying to harness that the cognitive impacts of the sort of composition theory. I want them to struggle by themselves with drafting the paragraphs, constructing the analysis. That's part of the learning process. And I do grade them on a presumption of originality, meaning as like most law schools, I have to grade on a curve. And so uh, if I give them a grade presuming something's original and it's not it messes up the curve and it's a sense it's a it's a fraud that's committed on their classmates they're obtaining a grade that they did not deserve and so i do make sure that's very clear to them that what i'm what we're doing in this classroom is really a learning experience yes i'm teaching them the conventions of legal communication and the sort of conventions of standard legal practice but I'm also teaching them legal analysis, and I'm doing that by harnessing composition theory. When they get in practice, that's going to be something different. They're going to find some efficiencies. Uh, and you know who knows, in 10, 20 years, um, plagiarized briefs may be the norm, and um, or copying briefs may be the norm. But certainly in the law school classroom. Uh, it still has to be original work
2: mm,
0: mm. well Andrew thanks so much for coming on the show this is a lot of fun and uh, I'm always delighted to talk about all things plagiarism
1: all right I look forward to your I uh, look forward to your follow-up essay on your uh, plagiarism is not a crime <laughs>